Welcome to The Radical Therapist. This is your host, Chris Hoff, and we are now at episode number 102, and today we're going to be talking about deliberate practice and therapy uh, with Ben Feynman. It was a wonderful conversation, wide-ranging. You're, you're, I, I know you're going to enjoy it. But before we get there, a couple quick announcements. On You're probably hearing this on Monday the 27th. On Tuesday, June 28th, on the YouTube, the Radical Therapist YouTube channel, uh, Brian Doster, marriage and family therapist Brian Doster, and I are going to be doing a YouTube Live. And the theme of this particular live is going to be, it's a in quotations, insecure man's world. And so we're going to be taking on topics like Roe v. Wade, uh, gun safety, and kind of myths around men in therapy. Uh, That'll be this Tuesday. And so uh, please join us for that. Um, Would love to have you. Uh, I've also restarted the Radical Therapist Patreon page. If you'd want to want to support the work that I'm doing for a cup of cost of a cup of coffee, please check out the Radical Therapist on Patreon. There's some videos up there now. One on wonderfulnesses and uh, a training video that Elena Grabanyak did for us and at CFI California Family Institute on find on the absent but implicit in trauma. And so there's some good stuff, good content coming up on the Radical Therapist Patreon page. And if you want access to that, check it out. And we could use a couple more people in the coffee and consults twice a month on Wednesday mornings at 9 a.m. Pacific Standard Time. A group of us are coming together, and I've been showing some video of my work and talking about the work, and uh, and we're just having a good time. And if you want to come have a cup of coffee with us and talk about cases and work and theory and all that kind of stuff, come join us on the Radical Therapist Patreon page. Uh, you can get all the information there. And... Uh, also, if you're in the Southern California area, California Family Institute is getting some meetings in person going back together. We're going to be putting a narrative and pizza together. So if you're interested in narrative therapy and having some pizza with us and this week or in July 10th on Sunday, July 10th at four o'clock, we're going to be talking about externalizing uh, technique or philosophy of life. I bet you know where I stand on that one. So come join us if you're in the SoCal area for narrative and pizza and finally, the Radical Therapist Gathering. Thank you, everybody that has registered so far. But if you have not registered in September, we're having the Radical Therapist Gathering. Lorraine Headkey, Gary Ware, me, Jay DiRigo. We're going to be, and surprise guests, we're going to be having some fun and uh, uh, communing together um, and just talking about all kinds of different stuff. So the Radical Therapist Gathering, you can get the link, I think, at the Radical Therapist page and the website, theradicaltherapist.com and all of that kind of stuff. So uh, you don't want to miss that. And having said that, I'm now going to introduce us to our guest, Mr. Ben Feynman, who is the clinic director for Sentio Counseling Center, a new organization using the merging science of deliberate practice to improve the quality of therapist training and education. He's the co-host of the Very Bad Therapy podcast with with the awesome Carrie Witta and host of the Learn Psychotherapy podcast, um, which we're going to want to check out. Um, and Ben is also an associate man- marriage and family therapist in the state of California, and he's just a innovative and creative guy and very dedicated to uh, the practice of therapy and improving training and education in, in the practice of therapy. And so without further ado, let's meet Ben. All right. Welcome to the Radical Therapist, Ben. Great to have you. Thanks so much, Chris. Yeah, it's good to see you. Um, and we I've been wanting to have this conversation with you for a while, so thank you for making the time. And today we are talking about deliberate practice and specifically to therapy. And I was wondering if maybe we should just start, for those that might not be too familiar, can you give us a bit of history on deliberate practice? Yeah, so the the idea of deliberate practice comes from something that's often referred to as the science of expertise. Essentially, how do people become experts in any given domain? And the term deliberate practice first showed up in, I think, in the early 90s. Uh, A researcher named Kay Anders Erickson Mm -hmm. was fascinated by this idea of what makes somebody so significantly better than somebody else at any given activity. Uh, And when you talk about expertise, you can look at a few different things. You can put me next to LeBron James, for example. I think we're about the same age. He is a much better basketball player than I am. Uh, Part of that is because he spent his whole life practicing how to play basketball. Uh, Part of that is also 
however tall he is, it is probably about a foot taller than I am. And so there are different things that contribute to what makes somebody an expert in various domains. But what Erickson really was curious about is what makes somebody so much better than somebody else in an area where it isn't just innate. It doesn't have to do with height. It doesn't have to do with how high you can jump. So he studied a lot of musicians, a lot of uh, athletes. And what he found was that what makes one person better than somebody else is often just simply how much they practice. And a key distinction is that practice in this case is not performance. So performance is going out and doing something. Practice is isolating a very specific skill related to that activity and developing it with feedback, with a coach, with specific clear skills that you're trying to achieve. Uh, something about deliberate practice that entered uh, pop psychology a while back was uh, Malcolm Gladwell wrote about the 10,000 hour rule. Right. And there was actually a misinterpretation of Erickson's work when Gladwell wrote about it. So what Gladwell said was, if you do anything for 10,000 hours, you become an expert. And what Erickson said was, if you deliberately practice something for 10,000 hours, you become an expert. And that's that important distinction between practice and performance. That's great. And that's a great distinction. Thank you for putting that out there. Um, I guess my next question, what are the elements that make up deliberate practice? Uh, how does it look in practice? Yeah, so uh, I like to use myself as an example here. So I'm, I'm 38, and I started playing the drums about 25 years ago. Hmm. And I love playing the drums. Uh, what I don't love is practicing playing the drums. <laughs> so my parents got me drum lessons, and I went for about a month. And what I would do is, uh, I distinctly remember something called a paradiddle. And I'm not sure if that's even what it's supposed to be called, but you're taking the drumsticks and you're tapping them on the snare drum in a specific way. And it's, it's a lot less fun to do that than what I did after the drum lesson, which was go home, turn on MTV, because back then they still played music videos, especially rock videos, uh, turn it up as loud as I could so I could hear it over the drums. I'm sure my neighbors hated me. And I would just play along to the songs. And I wasn't very good, but it was a lot of fun. And 25 years later, I've, I've traded in my, my regular drum set for an electronic set so I can just put on Spotify and hear it through my headphones so my neighbors hate me less and my fiancé doesn't hate me as much. Uh, but I, honestly, I'm just about as good at the drums as I was 25 years ago because what I'm doing is performing. I'm just playing along with a song because I find it to be enjoyable. What I'm not doing are the paradiddles or whatever other um, like important skills, whatever the, the names are that make you tech, like proficient, uh, technically proficient at playing the drums. And that's what deliberate practice, that's where deliberate practice shows up. You're isolating a very specific skill that is relevant to a, a broader kind of ability you want to develop. You're saying, what are the component parts of this individual skill? You're making it very granular and you're just rehearsing that one specific skill. And ideally you're doing this with some way to get feedback from somebody who is uh, a coach, an expert, a supervisor, even a peer who can identify what you're doing well, what you're not doing well, and give you precise feedback, so then you can just continue to do it. Uh, and something that's important to this distinction is that deliberate practice is done in a safe and supportive environment. Hmm. So it's okay to make mistakes. Making mistakes is actually part of it. Failing is part of it, because whether it's therapy or playing the drums or ballet or anything, you don't just show up one day and you're perfect at it. You have to make mistakes and learn and grow and be open to those kinds of micro failures. Right. And deliberate practice says, not only is that okay, it's actually part of it. We want you to fail so we can identify what are the areas that you can develop and then practice to develop those skills. That's great. And you're reminding me of my guitar playing, which I'm not getting any better at because I don't practice scales. Or, you know, people would do, so, yeah. uh, it's, and it's I, a great, well, great I th example. Like, I think about uh, jazz musicians, yep. right? I, I like listening to jazz. Uh, I really don't know anything about it. It's background music for me. It's pleasant background music. I, you, you strike me as the kind of person who would enjoy jazz. I do, yeah. I, I feel like your listeners of this podcast, many of them probably enjoy jazz. And a jazz musician, you see them improvise a piece and they're playing with a band and it seems very um, like spur of the moment. Right, improvisational. Exactly. Which there is a lot in jazz, but... Yeah, yeah. and there is a lot in therapy as well. Right. But jazz musicians don't become masters by just improving on stage. Right. They are behind the scenes performing scales, practicing, getting really good at those micro skills so that when they're on stage, it's second nature and they can just take it in whatever direction they want. And that's how it translates to therapy in a way is nobody's going to go into therapy and say, I'm going to do X, Y, and Z and just lay it out prescriptively. Right. Maybe some therapists will. There's some models that incorporate that. But having very precise skills allows you to be improvisational in a way that is more proficient, is more skilled, helps people sitting across from you more. That's great. 
Okay, if uh, deliberate practice means like practicing with a clear awareness of a skill we're aiming to improve, like drumming or guitar playing or what have you, or more importantly, therapy. I guess we're talking about therapy today. Yeah. <laughs> how, do, how does this apply to therapy? And Because um, I, I imagine many would say that the level of complexity around therapy, we kind of romanticize that in some ways too, I think. I do, I think, a little bit. Uh, but the level of complexity that would be... Uh, how, how do you nail down that kind of complexity in deliberate practice? Uh, in a way, you don't. Mm. And I think that's liberating because there, there are a lot of wonderful minds in the therapy field who are trying to come up with a, like a, a, unified, a unified theory of psychotherapy. Right. And those are kinds of our models in a sense. Um, I think we've got plenty of those. Uh, <laughs> I, I don't think there's convincing research that suggests models are the answer, but rather an important component of something else. And that's something else we really don't know yet. We, we can't specifically say this is how therapy works. It is so beautifully complex. And something I really appreciate about the deliberate practice approach to education and training is that we don't need a theory of everything. We can just identify what are the skills for you as an individual practitioner? What are the skills that generally show up in effective therapy, like empathy, like having a shared goal, like having a good therapeutic alliance. And then from there, we can get really granular about how can you practice skills that make you a more empathic therapist. But in terms of the complexity, we can just kind of ignore it and say, we don't have answers. So we're not going to try and solve it. We're just going to identify the things that we can control that are specific to ourselves on a general and on an individualized basis and say, all right, that's what we're going to practice. Yeah, that's great. Um... And I guess I have an additional question for that, and I and because um, you just had me thinking about a lot of the training co goes on in systems or places or settings where there is not kind of that individual attention that might be required in a de deliberate practice approach. I mean, what are your thoughts about that, or how? What are uh, your workarounds around some of that? And I'm sure you have people coming to you saying, "Help me." <laughs> so, what do you think? I think both are very important, and I think our field has historically focused on the former, that generalized training, where you learn theoretically how to do something. Sure, yeah. But, you know, Chris, you and I are different people, and everybody listening to this, if they're a therapist, is a, a different person who may choose to integrate certain knowledge differently, or who may actually literally integrate it differently. They may, just the way they say their words, the way they show up as a therapist using whatever theory they're using, will just naturally look different from person to person. So theoretical knowledge can only take you so far. At some point, there is a, a procedural, a behavioral knowledge about how do you do this thing that you just learned in a weekend training with 50 other people? Mm -hmm. And how can you do it better? What do you do well, and how can you take that and generalize it? Uh, so there's, there's an important need, I think, to not reduce or get rid of the theoretical, the general, but introduce this more individualized approach to skill building and therapy where we're saying, okay, uh, I know, Chris, you're obviously a huge fan of narrative therapy. Right. I am as well. But if I looked at a video of you doing narrative therapy and vice versa, there, there would be obvious distinctions just naturally. Absolutely. You may be incredible at uh, externalizing and asking those questions. And it may be something that feels a bit strange to me because, and this is true, it, it just has never felt comfortable asking somebody, you know, so how does anxiety impact you with a capital A? And this just always feels a bit uncomfortable because it feels forced in a way. It's not natural language to me. So that's something that I could practice very clearly mm -hmm. uh, and have stimuli created or work with a coach or a peer or somebody who can help give me prompts that make me just have to repeat this skill on a very granular level, understand how can I do it well, get feedback, and just practice until it feels more second nature. But you may not need to do that at all. You may walk away from a narrative training being like, yeah, like I got that. I don't have to work on that skill. Right. And that's wonderful. Right, right. Awesome. Okay. Uh so if to, I, I, I like this. You brought up the idea of failure and, and, and spaces where mistakes are okay. And, uh, you know, if deliberate practice requires us to keep targeting areas where we, we feel we're weak in, that kind of thing, that means it's, we have to spend some time doing stuff we're not good at, right? And how do we keep folks in? And we live in a culture that doesn't, like, views failure in a particular way, right, often. So how do we keep folks leaning into that sort of work, like, you know, <laughs> having to confront mistakes and failure and that kind of thing when we, you know, obviously we would probably much rather not look at that stuff. 
Uh, I, have, I have so many thoughts on this. So please let me know if I'm if I just ramble off into go, a different go, direction. Go for it. <laughs> uh, the first one is it is naturally difficult to have intrinsic motivation to do something that is hard, to do something where you're recognizing you're making mistakes. And a big component of deliberate practice is staying in, in what's called the zone of proximal development, mm -hmm. where it's not too easy that you're not growing, you're not learning, and it's not too hard where you're overwhelmed or dysregulated. It's that zone where you're challenging yourself appropriately to develop a skill. Like if you're at the gym and you're lifting a weight, you don't want to lift a one pound weight or a 500 pound weight. There's, there's somewhere in between that, that it's the right amount. So staying in there is important to help people allow themselves to make mistakes without it being discouraging or shame inducing. Uh, that part about it being shame inducing, I think is, is a big sticking point for me when I think about ways to uh, conceptualize therapist education and training differently. Mm because I think so much of us go into this field feeling a sense of anxiety that we don't know how to, how to do therapy. And we want answers to ease our anxiety. And fortunately, we have wonderful professors and trainers and peers who will give us answers. But oftentimes it's done so in a way that suggests this is the answer right. and that there is a right way to do it. And naturally, if that's the message you internalize, you will feel a sense of personal failure and shame if you don't have that confidence. You may be able to write a great paper in grad school but then you sit across from a client and feel like you're not helping them or they drop out or you stumble over your words. I mean, everybody has imposter syndrome to some degree, I think. Mm -hmm. And the solution Daily. seems, what's that? Daily. <laughs> yeah, it, the solution seems to be get answers, at least early on. Understand what you don't understand so the imposter syndrome goes away. Mm -hmm. And the reality is the more confident you are as a therapist, this is one of my like most favorite findings in research and therapy is that there, there is a correlation between confidence and effectiveness in therapy, but it's, it's inverse. Right. So if you're overconfident, you're likely to make more mistakes as a therapist right. because we all make mistakes and the awareness that you are making mistakes is the antidote as opposed to finding all the solutions. And so deliberate practice is beautiful in that it invites in the mistakes. And so to help somebody be okay with that, I think it really is a culture shift in some ways where you're saying becoming a more effective therapist is about welcoming in those mistakes because it helps you identify your areas for growth. Uh, but it is hard. It's hard intrinsically and it's hard when you may feel like you're in a system where you have to demonstrate objective knowledge to pass the licensing exam, to you know, mm -hmm. uh, graduate from your program, uh, just to feel like you know what you're talking about on Facebook and get mm -hmm. likes and that, you know, all that that does it's hard to show up and say, I really don't know what I'm doing and I need to practice to get better. So there's a, a real culture shift. And if people don't feel like they have that kind of support around them now, but they're interested in deliberate practice, I think seeking out peers and colleagues who share that intrinsic motivation is so incredibly important uh, because it's, it's not easy work. It's, it's simple, but it's not easy. All right. And you speak to my dissertation. I want to. I have to say this because uh, in my dissertation, I did a study with um, early... MFT students uh, around learning theory and and you know one of the findings was they they you know you talked about just g giving the information having giving them the answers but it was a scaffolding process and I did reference the zone of proximal development in my dissertation but students want the information up front right and then they want us to trust them as educators supervisor whatever that they'll somehow make it their own as they go along through the process but they they do have those questions on the front side and I think some of us on the postmodern therapy side have been pretty guilty of like, we'll teach theory and then they'll figure it out on their own. And I think that's too far a leap, I think. Um, and talking zone, Michael White would call it the known and familiar and the, and the possible to know, right? And sometimes I think we get too far out there. And I really liked the feedback I got from my students was that give us the information. We want answer our questions and then we'll, we'll figure it out, right? And I, and I, I appreciate that approach because it does you know, speak to personal agency. So, um, yeah. So, um, I, I heard, I've heard in deliberate practice circles that talent is overrated. And I think you've kind of touched on this, but there, there's a growing body of research that flat out shows some therapist out for perform others, right. Based on a particular measurement, of course, and depending on who you ask these days, the, the reason for that outperformance is, you know, by using feedback or, way of being or, you know, I'm in the kind of more relational knowing camp. And what are your thoughts about the role of talent when it comes to therapy? 
it's a it's a fascinating question because as as you alluded to there is uh, a good bit of convincing research and the research in our field is is flawed in many ways well, we can yeah. we can name that um but there is a, a good bit of convincing research that some therapists are simply more effective than others uh but we we haven't yet figured out specifically what that means what makes somebody an effective therapist because there have been studies done. Uh, some of the people who are at the forefront of deliberate practice research, like Dr. Scott Miller, Dr. Tony Romanier, they've looked at and studied and actually sat in on sessions with the, some of the people with the best outcomes, the best therapeutic outcomes based on uh, routine outcome monitoring where clients are filling out their subjective sense of well-being. And the conclusions that people walk away from after doing these, this analysis is it just seems random. <laughs> what makes somebody a great therapist is so hard to pin down and quantify and then generalize for other therapists. So talent exists in therapy, but what, what that is, it, I think is still unknown and may forever be unknown because therapy is so complex. But that doesn't mean that you can't develop your individual sense of talent. So for example, I can spend the rest of my life trying to be a great basketball player. Right. I will never be as good as LeBron James was probably when he was eight years old. He could probably dunk a basketball when he was in third grade. I'm sure. I am five foot eight. I will never dunk a basketball <laughs> in my life. I have come to terms with that. Um, but it doesn't mean I couldn't train myself to jump a little bit higher. It doesn't mean I couldn't train myself to have better footwork. By the way, all this makes it sound like I play basketball. I haven't shot a basketball <laughs> in 20 years. It's just a good analogy, I think. Right. So talent exists in therapy, but we can't say this is how you become a better therapist. And I think one of the common critiques about deliberate practice in general, but especially in therapy, and it's fair, is that therapy isn't something you can just create a set of skills for and send somebody out and they'll be excellent at therapy. Mm. But what you can do is model how to practice, not so much what to practice, but how to practice so that people can then adapt deliberate practice exercises for their own needs and grow their talent that way. And what makes you, Chris, uh, a better therapist? What might take you from how effective you are now to 1% more effective? Because deliberate practice is a slow process. Mm -hmm will likely look completely different than somebody else. And that's okay. Hmm. We just have to figure out what is that for you personally. So that might require um, videotaping your sessions, hmm. using outcome monitoring, uh, using feedback you've gotten from clients, even just trusting your gut and saying, what is something I struggle with with this specific client? For me, it's, it's hard to interrupt clients. That's just something I, I do not do well. Uh, it, it feels uncomfortable, even if a client has said, please interrupt me. I know I ramble. Mm -hmm. You know, we've all had mm -hmm. clients who say mm -hmm. that yeah. and it's wonderful because it gives us permission to, to stop them. It's still, it's forever something that is, that is hard for me. So I practice that. I try to get just a tiny bit better at doing it in an empathic way and overcoming my own internal anxiety to have to cut somebody off who I'm trying to make feel safe with me. Uh, you may not have that problem. So oh, I don't. my level of What's that? I don't. <laughs> I like how you said I don't in the middle of a sentence. Exactly. <laughs> Which, yeah. <laughs> I, I would never do that. And it's not a value judgment. It's just like I feel anxiety if I, want, if I notice that impulse. Exactly. And so I can develop my talent by actually practicing that in role plays with uh, videotape of my sessions. I do that. I, I watch videotapes of clients that I know would be helpful to interrupt. Mm -hmm. And I will start talking over them and then I'll hit pause just to help me feel it just a tiny bit better about it when it's actually happening in session. Hmm. That's a way for me to grow my talent level. It would be a waste of your time because you can already do that well. And I'm sure there are things that maybe are not implicitly natural for you that might be easier for me. And I wouldn't be practicing those. Yeah. So I can't tell you what to do, but we can work together to help you figure out what would be best for you. Yeah. Uh, and that's where you can become a more talented therapist. Yeah, my, uh, because you shared one of yours, I'll share one of mine. I, I often get too far out and ahead of the client. And so, um, and I still video work today. I mean, I still, I, and I'll talk about that maybe in a little bit, but just, yeah, that's one of the things I'm constantly seeing in the video work that I'm looking at of myself is how I get out in front of clients in a particular way and try to move a little too fast. And that's probably why I don't have a problem interrupting because <laughs> I, I do tend to move a little too fast. So that's kind of the work for me right these days. Yeah. Yeah. And it's, it's something where you could take that and get more granular. And because that's, that's another thing about deliberate practices, specificity is so important mm -hmm. because maybe the skill you want to work on is not getting too far ahead of clients. Yeah. Okay, great. If we practice that, what does that look like? It's, mm -hmm. it's, it's vague. So we can get specific and say, what would you be doing in session differently? 
and then we can come up with scenarios to help you practice that very, like, very clear representation of the skill you want to develop. Right. All right. Um, while engaging in deliberate practice, practitioners are looking for errors or areas of weakness, and when identified, they establish a plan for improving them. You just described it very well. How does this play out in therapy? How do you account for uh, different approaches and theories? Um, I mean, I'm a pro I'm on the postmodern side of things. You know, you and I, and I know you lean that way in some ways too. I know uh, we might view errors in different ways, though. Say, you know, someone doing EFT or CBT would kind of view something different from my thing. How do you account for that when you're working with folks? Yeah, so the, the first uh, thing that comes to mind is a question, which is what, what do you feel like is an error from your perspective? And you can use the example we just had. Mm -hmm. uh, you can use, if, if you don't want to make it personal, uh, we can use an example of something you've seen in a trainee or in an associate. Mm -hmm. um, just like what's one example yeah. of an error that so, comes to mind for you? So one thing that we're working on a lot at CFI, for example, is trying to um, slow down prescription or interpretations of people's experiences, for example, which might be free game and say a psychodynamic approach, right? So oftentimes, you know, somebody will want to be telling a client something and a common correction that we do is how would you turn that into a question? Okay. Right. And because, you know, from a more collaborative or kind of postmodern or narrative therapy approach, it's all about question development, questions driving the work, questions as interventions, right, rather than prescriptions or interpretations, for example, in, in other models. Yeah. And, and I think that, in a sense, answers your own question, which is an error is as it's defined by whatever context you're putting it in. Right. So if you're a narrative therapist and you're teaching somebody to do narrative therapy more fundamentally sound, this is a skill you can work on. You can say, okay, you went to interpretation here. Let's come up with a, some stimuli. If you have it on video, we can watch it and catch yourself wanting to interpret and ask a question instead. Mm -hmm. Or we could role play and I could give you a prompt that you could force yourself to ask a question to and I can come up with something you know, I'll say something about my mother when I was five years old and you want to go into interpretation right away and you notice that and you catch it and you ask a question. But if we're doing psychodynamic training, that wouldn't be a, a skill you'd have to practice. You'd say, great, they keep doing the interpretation. In fact, we can find the times when you're asking a question and redirect it to interpretation. Right. And there may be therapists who are integrating narrative and psychodynamic therapy. That's something you probably do because I know you're very interested in both a little bit. <laughs> No comment, but no, <laughs> but I I don't typically in my work. I do I do I have interest in psychoanalytic theory, right? In, right. In other contexts, but typically in my work, I try to. I'm not a purist in any way, but I, I do try to, you know, ask questions, and I don't do I I avoid ter interpretation and prescription. Okay. Yeah. If if you ever wanted to branch <laughs> out and integrate yeah. psychoanalytic theory with narrative therapy, right. You could figure out what does that look like with clients and practice those skills. And an error would be taking too much time for questions or too much time for interpretation. Right. Um, it, it really, that's, that's one of the wonderful things about deliberate practice is how individualized it is because therapy training to some extent has to be. No two therapists are alike, no, no two clients right. are alike. So something that is an error with one client. And this is something that uh, my colleague uh, Carrie Reed and I have learned over and over again on our uh, Very Bad Therapy podcast is that what some clients experience is very helpful, others will experience as very harmful. Right. And so even defining an error goes outside of theory, goes outside of the therapist and into the client. So if you have a specific client where something is an error, you can practice that just for the benefit of your work with that client. It gets very, very specific and precise. Yeah, and I appreciate that. I, I, that kind of puts the client in a driver's seat. So I imagine, you know, feedback is an important tool in the pract in the deliberate practice, correct? Yeah, I, I find that the people who tend to be most drawn to deliberate practice are people who have like an innate sense of humility where yeah. Yeah. they recognize can they can never truly be the, the capital E expert because mistakes are a part of the process in therapy. And if you allow for mistakes, you, you allow for your own fallibility. And so accepting feedback from clients, soliciting and valuing feedback from clients fits right into that framework because you're saying, I do have things to, to develop. So if this client says something didn't work, there's value there. I can look at it and say, is there something I can learn from this to become a more effective therapist? Mm -hmm. Awesome. Wonderful. Uh, 
Okay. Um, what are some of the common therapist limitations you come across? We shared some of ours. You're not mine and yours. But what are some of the common therapist limit limitations you come across as someone implementing de deliberate practice? It's it's so varied that I don't even have like a, a top five list. Okay. And honestly, when I when I hear the question, what are the the limitations in doing deliberate practice? The the biggest one, and I think it's so important to name, is uh, just the fact that there really isn't a structure in place in our field to support deliberate practice. The no, external right. support required to do this work oftentimes doesn't exist. And you know, I'm, I'm sitting here talking about the importance of practice and motivation and all of these wonderful qualities, but if you're not set up in a system that supports you, it doesn't matter. And that's a huge concern with deliberate practice is it takes time. Uh, not everybody has that time, even if you're doing 15 minutes a day, not everybody has that time. Um, it can take money if you want to hire a coach to support you, but even if you don't want to hire a coach to support you, there's an opportunity cost. If you're sitting down to do deliberate practice, putting in the mental energy, you're not doing something else that could be securing your financial future. Hmm. Uh, and yeah. when you're in grad school, when you're in training, even, even post-licensure, people have a lot of debt often. Um, it isn't always practical to do something where there is no uh, extrinsic reward. The incentive structure in the field of psychotherapy is, is honestly pretty fucked up, where your effectiveness as a therapist is very loosely correlated to your success, your financial success, your professional success as a therapist. Mm. I would put your effectiveness way down the list, far below your ability to market yourself if you're in private practice, right. your ability to network, your ability to specialize and uh, have a niche that gets clients in the door. If you're the best therapist in the world, but you, you are terrible at marketing, which I think a lot of therapists just naturally are because we're not self-serving in that way. Yeah, right. Uh, I hear myself, and there's there's judgment placed on marketing, and I, I want to take that back. I'm just going to name. I don't think that there's anyway. Um, there isn't a lot of incentive to actually make yourself a better therapist unless it is intrinsic. And if it is, and you don't have the external support to do the work or to have the time or the resources, you're going to give up. And so the the fact that our things like graduate school, um, associateship training, continuing education don't build that in to how therapists learn to be therapists, make it very hard to just set aside time to do this by yourself. So when I hear therapist limitations, I think the biggest one is the fact that systems of psychotherapy, of education and training, have just not prioritized this. And that, yeah. that's the biggest concern, not so much one person's lack of motivation. Yeah. And that goes back to my you know comment about like just the setting. We're, we're not set up for that, right? And so, yeah. and and listeners will get to that. Ben Ben is doing work on on making deliberate practice more accessible to folks, and we'll get there in a bit. But um, uh, deliberate practice is interested in studying top performers and then designing practice activities reflecting what they do. Who are your top performers, and what would be an example of an activity based on their work for you, for example? I think my, my answer will, will frustrate you because there, there is no specific answer. Deliberate practice is about how to practice, not so much what to practice. Okay. And because different therapists excel at different things, what, what makes you an excellent therapist may not make me an excellent therapist. Um, I, I think of a story that uh, my colleague, Dr. Tony Ruminier, talks about where uh, there was research that identified somebody who was you know, the most effective therapist, right, based on her outcome data. And so he, he studied her, he visited her, he observed sessions, he hung out with her just to learn what is she doing. And it was stuff that was so specific to her worldview. It was about uh, like the, the diet that she followed so that she felt a certain way physically at certain times of day with clients. Things that were so specific to her way of life and how she showed up with therapists that if I were to say, because this person has wonderful outcomes and this is what she does, that's what we all should do, I think we'd be setting ourselves up for failure yeah, because absolutely. it may not fit for us. So it's not so much about how do you become her, it's how do you identify what's within you that lets you become like the most you you can be. Figure out what makes you effective and strengthen those skills in a sense. Yeah. So there's yeah, yeah there's no I, specific answer. I do want to share, yeah, and um and you can tell me if there's some version. You know, I, I when I the reason I'm really interested in deliberate practice is because of an experience I had teaching um, 
being a pro, in a narrative program at Cal State San Bernardino with John Winslow and Lorraine Headkey, where they took like um, their students and they had to do five videos over a course of semester. And there was a rubric attached to the videos. Like it, you were going to be kind of uh, evaluated, so to speak, you know, narrative peers are going to hate this, but <laughs> <laughs> you were going to be evaluated on like naming the problem and externalizing language and mapping effects and some of these kinds of basic um, practices in the narrative approach. And, um, and I know, that's going to, whatever. But anyway, so, but the reason it, it really worked is that over the course of these five videos and this feedback they got from me, you know, I had my students, my batch of students, and the feedback that I got from them, that all of them, like, in my view, excel. Like, by the time they were done, at five videos in the short period of semester, starting from video one to video five, the, the, the amount of improvement and the amount of confidence that they had in like sub submitting themselves to this process, getting feedback, being vulnerable, having to show v video to all their peers, going through that process. Uh, and I don't know what exactly about it that made it happen, but I would just, it just sold me on video and <laughs> the importance of videoing your work, having somebody there to kind of coach you and, and, and get feedback and even from your peers, right, and and support, and just having this space, we had this nice little cocoon of like, we're all going to be vulnerable here, whatever. But it, just the the amount of improvement, not just in their skills, their skills definitely improve, but also in their confidence and the dissolving of the imposter syndrome and some of that stuff. It was just, it just kind of sold me on the whole thing. Now that wasn't quite deliberate practice, but what would you think of some doing something like that, right? I think it's fantastic. Yeah, because I was in a there, master's program. Quite not, you're going to probably hate to hear this, but we never showed video once of our work. And my, I think that's that's normal. Yeah, I, which yeah, I didn't know. Yeah, I didn't know. But in my PhD program, we, I showed video all the time. But so I knew the difference, and that, and I saw how I got better. Right. Yeah. 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 I, I I think it's it's fantastic, and whether or not it's ideologically pure deliberate practice. <laughs> right. I mean, is is a misnomer because that doesn't really exist in therapy. It's it's very much still in the process of being defined. Um, mm. But it's it's something that invites in that vulnerability that allows for mistakes and growth to be part of the process, and minimizes the the shame that that yeah. comes with the fact that therapy is so behind closed doors that you hold on to your mistakes, your insecurities, in a way that they really don't get normalized. Mm. Uh, and I think it's closer to deliberate practice than you may be giving it credit for. Yeah, no, no, and I and I that's why I kind of you know wanted to know more about deliberate practice and started to read you know anyway. Yeah. But I, I am curious about your take. Like, why aren't programs like doing video? <laughs> and we all know that self-report is like the worst kind of <laughs> you know way to do supervision. So why why do you think? Uh, people programs are shying away from having actual and I know some settings don't allow it and that kind of thing but what are your thoughts uh, I, <laughs> I, I I don't know where to begin because I I don't have a background in higher education okay. um, so it's it's hard to name specifically but a few things come to mind um, let's see it's such it's such a hard question the so I'm sure, Chris, you're familiar with a good bit of the, the research in therapy that suggests that there's no clear, reliable correlation between a therapist's experience and their effectiveness. Right, yeah. So some, some people do get more effective over time. Some actually decrease, decline over time. But on average, therapists tend to be just as effective as they were in year one and year 20. This, to me, calls into question our training and education methods because it isn't like there's a huge spike in grad school and then it levels off. It's just kind of consistent from, from day one, more or less. So if we really internalize what that research means, it's our methods of training and education may not be as effective as they could. And to embrace something like deliberate practice in a graduate setting, to some extent, almost allows for recognition that current methods of training have room for growth, or to put it more bluntly, are not doing what they're designed to do. And so I think there's maybe some like psychological dissonance in doing something so fundamentally different as deliberate practice because it suggests what you're currently doing maybe isn't as effective as we all want to believe it is. Right. Um, I think another part uh, comes from just 
trends in higher education in general. So my, my fiance uh, is a consultant for colleges and universities. Like his domain is to go around and speak with people about uh, teaching and accessibility and changing systems for the better, et cetera. And he talks about how higher education is very much behind the times in that there is this historical model where the professors are, are, are holders of knowledge. They are the experts who will teach the students how to do something and then measure how well did they learn how to do the thing. Which makes a lot of sense if you go back 30 years before everybody had access to the internet. Mm -hmm. But access to knowledge is so widespread now that professors don't need to be the ones to tell people how to do things. Professors are more effective if they're showing people how to think, how to evaluate, how to practice, how to learn, as opposed to what to know. And I think in, in the field of psychotherapy, and I want to be so careful when I describe this because I, I am still relatively new to the field, and I'm sure in 10 years I'll look back and recognize myself as being tremendously naive. But it, it seems like there is a history of you get your degree, you learn a bit. You get your license, you learn a bit more. If you become a professor, you, you have knowledge to pass along. And it, I think on some level it really undermines our confidence in the institution of psychotherapy and how we learn and train to suggest that it really isn't about teaching somebody how to be a therapist, but rather helping them identify what they can practice for themselves to become a better therapist. It changes the role of the instructor, it changes the role of the supervisor, it shifts the priority of knowledge, which of course narrative therapists will uh, be receptive to. Right. Um, and I'm not sure if we're ready for that as a field because it mm -hmm. so challenges our origins in the medical model dating back to the, the era of you know Freud. Yeah, yeah. Um... There is a lot of uh, uh, inertia in the status quo, right? And to yeah, and to take it to do that kind of undertaking, I don't know. Um, but um, well, one quick quick question, and then I want to get to what you're doing and the projects that you're taking on. So, um, what would you say to someone that might view deliberate practice as a quick hack? You know, everybody's looking for quick hacks these days, right? Yeah, if if they <laughs> hear deliberate practice and think we're presenting it as a quick hack, I, I would just correct them to say that we very humbly acknowledge that deliberate practice is a lifelong process with slow incremental progress. One weekend of doing deliberate practice will not make you more effective at anything. And honestly, I think there's a tremendous amount of hubris to think that one weekend of anything in our field will make you better. Right. Like one weekend of training in trauma, like think about the complexity of trauma. Are, are we really gonna say that therapists yeah. can just get 16 hours of didactic learning and can go out and meaningfully be more effective with clients experiencing trauma. Yeah, but now I'm trauma-informed. <laughs> right. It, sound, it sounds great. Yeah, it uh, sounds great. Right. I don't believe the research suggests that it actually makes you more effective, right. which is humbling. Um, deliberate practice is, is not something that presents itself as a quick fix. Uh, it is a, a long, difficult, challenging, hopefully at times fun, creative, exciting process uh, where you might do it for a year and see just a tiny bit of incremental progress in your outcomes. You may do it for 10 years and see just a tiny bit more. Um, and that's okay. If it's, if it's part of the systems that we're in, it doesn't feel like extra work, and we're just naturally all progressing and getting better. If it's something where you have to go outside of the systems you're in to meaningfully engage in this, and then you realize it really isn't going to make you a, a super shrink in a week, a month, a year, 10 years, it makes sense that it just wouldn't catch on as quickly as we'd like it to because it is not a quick fix. Right. Um, if, if people hear this and they, they want quick fixes, uh, yeah, I, I don't think that exists in our field. If it did, we would see meaningful growth in the effectiveness of therapy over time, and that's another sobering <laughs> finding from research over the last half century yeah. is that yeah. we haven't. Well, and I'm glad you're debunking the, the quick fix because we are, as therapists, you know, um, bombarded with, you know, those weekend trainings that are going to, you know, just change everything for you. And I appreciate you um, uh, situating deliberate practices, kind of a lifelong learning thing. And, yeah. Um, uh, okay. So uh, two things here with this question. What are the suggestions for someone wanting to implement these principles in their work or settings when they don't really have access to stuff? And what are you doing, Ben, to pre create access to deliberate practice principles? Yeah. So to the first question, I think having a, a community of like-minded people is the most important thing. Um, it's very, very difficult to maintain a, a deliberate practice practice uh, without that sense of support around you uh, right. because it, it does take effort. 
Um, I think being open to making mistakes, as we talked about, is tremendously important. And I would also encourage people to embrace creativity in the process. It, it may sound rote in some ways, where we're saying, this is the skill, and this is how you practice it, and this is what you get feedback on. But because you're in an environment where you're not sitting across from a client, you can try anything. You can say absolutely anything and see how it feels for you. See how the person you're practicing with, see how it resonates with them. You can try to integrate narrative and psychoanalytic principles, and maybe it crashes and burns, and you say, well, that was a stupid idea. Like Fundamentally, <laughs> that was never going to work. Right. Wonderful. Nothing has been lost by trying it. Right. But you get to practice in a way that, you know, maybe you actually do develop something magical. Maybe not. Um, but really bringing in creativity, I think, is, is a tremendous antidote to the fact that, you know, it, it can be it. monotonous yeah. sometimes. Love it, yeah. Yeah. Uh, in terms of what I've been working on, uh, so a little while back, Chris, you used the word uh, inertia to describe our systems of education in this field and, and really in general. Um, and I think that's a good place to start. So... Uh, two of my colleagues, uh, Tony Rumanier and Dr. Alex Vosh, they are, I think, at the at the forefront. They've been doing some incredible research um, over the last decade or so. Yeah, Tony Rumanier's book is great on deliberate practice if anybody is looking for a book. so. Oh, yeah. It's yeah, fantastic. It's a great book, yeah. Um, so Tony and Alex spent years going around giving workshops, presentations, speaking to department chairs and speaking at graduate programs and doing trainings. And the feedback they got on these principles of deliberate practice was fantastic. But over time, they started to actually feel guilty because they would get messages from people saying, this was great, but I haven't maintained it because I don't have the time or I don't have the resources or my supervisor wants to know, why do I want to record my sessions? Like the, in a sense, they were setting people up for failure, not because the people would fail, but because the systems around them wouldn't be supportive enough. And so what Tony and Alex realized was there is so much institutional inertia in our field that things are done a certain way, they've, they've always been done a certain way, and change is, is naturally slow in higher education. And so they said, well, let's just start our own university for therapist training where we can actually integrate these principles. And so about a year and a half back, I was fortunate enough to be brought on uh, to the team at what's called Sentio University, which is opening in 2024. It'll begin as a standalone uh, marriage and family therapy master's level program in the state of California. And we hope to expand in terms of what we offer at the university and also geographically uh, over, over the next years and decades, where we're, we're taking what we like to think of as the best in therapist education, stripping away things that may be not as effective or necessary and adding in a lot of this deliberate practice. So it's part of the system. So there is that just natural support that people have from day one when they enter the, the university. In addition to uh, the university, we're creating an affiliate training center called Sentio Counseling Center. And uh, my full-time job right now is as the director of Sentio Counseling Center. And it, it's been open since March of 2022. And I'm tremendously excited uh, that in the fall of 2022, we will actually be beginning with our first training cohort uh, of trainees and associates throughout the state of California. We just finished uh, our first round of interviewing Yay. and accepting counselors, which is incredible to see the enthusiasm that they have. And again, at, at Sentio Counseling Center, the training and the supervision we're giving integrates deliberate practice so that people feel like it's not something that they have to find the time for. It's, it's required of them. That's what we're, we're having them do and giving them that personalized support to be able to do it. Um, independent of all this, uh, I recently started a podcast called Learn Psychotherapy, which takes the principles of deliberate practice and applies them to, um, uh, I guess it's similar to language learning podcasts where you have a host, which in this case is myself, a guide, somebody, a, a student, through very specific skills that are united in, in a theme. So the first season was on the common factors of therapy, mm. and each episode is about a specific skill related to the common factors. So empathic understanding, collaborative goal setting, uh, you know, responding to uh, ruptures, things like that, where people can listen and follow along, but not just follow along, actually practice the skills that we're doing in real time along with the podcast as a way to make deliberate practice free, accessible, but I think also very clearly defined Something that's challenging at this stage of the, the development of deliberate practice in the field of psychotherapy is it's ambiguous. And people love the idea. I remember it took me six months from first learning about it to actually understanding what the hell it was. And I was <laughs> reading the books and watching the webinars. And if I had to talk about it, I'd say, I don't really know. Like, it sounds great, but I have no idea what it, what it is. We're trying to define it in a way uh, that makes it so it's, it's very easy to engage with. And so the Learn Psychotherapy podcast is an extension of that, where in future seasons, 
Uh, we'll be doing deliberate practice skills related to different theories of therapy, uh, different important topics. Um, and all of it is just designed to give people more access to this other way of learning. Um, and, and we'll see how it goes. It's all new, but it's all very exciting. Yeah, it is very exciting. And I love hearing about innovative new approaches and, and what you're trying to do, Ben. And that's just, uh, that's outstanding. And especially our education needs a little disrupting and <laughs> currently. And, I, and uh, so it's exciting to hear what you're doing. Listeners, I'll have all of Ben's stuff linked in the show notes so you can access that. Uh, final question, Ben, and I like to ask all the guests this question. And, and again, thanks for coming on. And, um, and I got to get Carrie on here too, sooner or later. So. <laughs> Absolutely. Uh, for those that don't know, uh, Carrie and Ben, Ben does a podcast with Carrie, uh, uh, with Carrie Witta, um, around very, it's called very bad therapy podcast. So, um, you can imagine what that might mean. Go check it out. <laughs> anyway. So Ben, final question. What book, ideas, art, films, whatever are capturing your attention these days? What's giving you, uh, what's sustaining you in this work? Uh, gosh, the, the three things that I have uh, enjoyed the most recently, um, I read The Death of Ivan Ilyich. Oh, okay. Uh, which is a, a, somewhere in between a short story and a novel mm -hmm. um, that I found so incredibly powerful, uh, just about the dying process. Uh, so wonderfully written that it, baffles me that the author himself had not gone through this process to be able to write about it. And there was a movie that was inspired by the book, uh, or the short story, called Ikiru. Mm. Uh, I have never cried harder. Wow. In watch I, I don't usually cry when I watch movies. I think Coco, uh, the movie Coco about five <laughs> years ago, that just, I lost that it. <laughs> Every time I watch it, I lose yeah. it. Yeah. Uh, and, then, and then this movie, uh, Ikiru, is just so hauntingly beautiful. Mm. Uh, I cannot express enough how much I love those two pieces of work. Um, and then I also recently finished uh, the show Shit's Creek, which oh, is yeah. certainly uh, like in, a, in a different category of entertainment. But that also got me. That also made me cry. I think I've just been feeling uh, the need to cry a lot lately. And so those have really brought it out in me. That was a fantastic show. That was Highly wonderful. recommended as well. Schitt's Creek was actually, uh, it was a running topic in the supervision groups at CFI for a long time. Oh, that's Because everybody was like getting updated. So. Oh, so good. Yeah. Uh, again, Ben, thanks for making the time coming out. And I really appreciate it. And, you know, yeah, keep up the good work that you're doing. Keep up the innovative and creative work that you're doing. Oh, thanks. Likewise, Chris. I absolutely love your podcast. It's an honor to talk to you. Thanks so much. Thanks. All right, that's our show. And as always, thanks for listening. Please share it with some people you think might benefit from it. Please go to the Radical Therapist YouTube channel and subscribe and check us out on the YouTube Live on Tuesday at 5 p.m. on the 28th. And we would love to have you there. Um, I think there's going to be a chat option too. So if you have some questions that come up, that we might be able to try to tackle some of those. So um yeah and uh register for the radical therapist gathering in september we want to have you there come come hang out with us uh, we'd love to have you there and so um i think that's it for it um you can always reach out to me at the radical therapist at gmail.com the radical therapist.com website um be happy to hear from you and please uh spread the word and let's grow the ranks of the radical therapists uh as always thanks for listening i'm dr chris hoff peace